Well, here we are, eight days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine and witnessing some of the most appalling military activity for a generation in Europe. The key question we discuss in this episode is not why, because it doesn't seem to be an answer to that question, but what next? As always, Paul is erudite and interesting. But also, in this episode, it demonstrates how negotiation in world affairs works, or at least should work. And the conclusions we reach? Well, this is serious. Very, very serious. I'm Matt. I'm John. I am Josh. And I'm Matt. And this is straight Straight from the hot center. I had a Ukrainian Jewish ex-girlfriend. And I went to Passover. They were all from Kiev. I went to Passover in Santa Monica. And there was this really old guy there who I realized he was a Holocaust survivor. And this was in 2014. So this was during the first round of trials. Yeah, Crimea and Donbass, yeah. I said to the guy, isn't it terrible what's going on in Ukraine now? And the guy looked to me and said, Mm, I think uh, Putin, he is not being tough enough on them. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, there's some very hard and fast, I mean, beliefs by a lot of people on, especially the the Ukrainian speaking. And then, of course, the Ukrainian front, opposed to the Belarusian front in, in World War II, which was made up huge amounts of Ukrainians in the Soviet army. Yeah. Did some particularly interesting things uh, in Berlin. So, yeah, war does bring out the, the very worst of the people. The crazies. Yeah, I'm sorry for the delay. I had to race no, back from a crisis meeting in the desert with my girlfriend. <laughs> Diplomacy on both sides. Tension built. In the grand scheme of things, I think your crisis is not as bad as some people's crisis at the moment. No, yeah, I Matt, pretty yeah. much agree. <laughs> First world problems. <laughs> Yeah, first world problem. Anyway, diplomacy created a solution and all sides left the conference very happy. Oh, so. uh, good, good, good. What's going on in Ukraine? I think we should start really with a little sort of backslide from the last one and say yeah. that people that I know that have, that have listened to it have said it's brilliant, but we need a sort of weekly update as things change. And I think that... Uh, uh, I would offer that as a, as perhaps something that is worthy of consideration. I think the other thing is that we got it wrong, and 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 I say I say wrong because I think everyone else got it wrong. You know, there were like six ideas that he could do, and he went for number seven. <laughs> yeah. um, the greatest minds, military minds, and diplomatic minds, are all going. What he's done? What we're left now in a position where. With all that we know uh, collectively about Russia, the Russian people, the state of Russian politics, that their military, diplomacy, the UN, um, OSCE, how the governance of of Russia works, you know, the oligarchy and uh, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that he's gone down this path is extraordinary. Obviously, in 1962, we have the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. People of a certain generation, like myself, spent a considerable amount of time making sure that if we saw the bomb blast turning towards with our legs because that would save us or hiding under school desks, etc., uh, etc. Et We're now faced with the reality of, uh, and I've heard all the talking heads this morning from very, very senior Russian experts. There isn't one that's come up with a, an explanation or even a, oh, you know, I, I expected 
that this to happen and this is normal fare. This is a world that none of us have expected. You know, we've we've stepped back into time into sort of 1939. They've gone into Poland. Now what happens? What's so extraordinary, Paul? I think the extraordinary nature of in warfare taking on a belligerent country or a country that's caused you problems or some sort of massive grievance in sort of 19th century terms uh, was almost expected. We went from you know, Franco-Prussian War to you know, the Balkan Wars to, to World War I, and it was all about grievances and armies facing each other and, and incursions and, and stuff like that. To skip right into, we just want your land in 2022 is quite extraordinary i mean we expected the russians during the cold war i spent five years in in germany waiting for the third shock army to come over the hill and equally so they on the other side expected nato to to come in and try and take east germany but of course nothing ever happened and nobody made any wrong moves and nobody did anything stupid you could argue of course that the smaller wars were extensions of that cold war afghanistan or or contras or or, or even terrorism to a certain extent but simply to wake up one morning and say i'm having that country now where that country posed not a threat not a an ounce of threat nor had the capability to do anything to you as a nuclear superpower is the equivalent to America saying, I want Canada because uh, it's part of North America. We're American and we want the North bit to join up with, with Alaska for no reason. That, that was it. That's it. We're, we're just having Canada. Or the British turning around and saying, we'll retake Southern Ireland. It used to be ours. We want it back. In 2022? Yeah, in, in 1722, you'd, <laughs> you'd almost expect it. It's almost like a sports, wasn't it, back then? It was... Yeah, like a continual game of rugby. America <laughs> tried to invade Canada, you know, in 1812. The and, War of 1812. Uh, and the Fenian Raids in 1866. But everyone sort of went, yeah, right, Canada just, you know, trounced them and, uh, and everyone went back home. This is the extraordinary bit. And I think the other side of, or the other bit to that is the mutual destruction of, of nuclear warfare has always been you destroy me, I destroy you, and everyone's destroyed, and so we're never going to go down that road. Sounds a bit like your relationship, Matt. Yeah, seriously, dude. <laughs> My relationship is a lot too soon, too soon. Than that. Okay. <laughs> but, but who's got the red button and who's prepared to use it? We've both got our own stockpiles and we're both prepared to use them. <laughs> it's not mutually assured destruction, it is destruction. But we are faced now with, we're having this land, we are going to destroy it we are going to use thermobaratic warheads and completely flatten european cities because we can and if you don't like it and or if you want to stop us by traditional means we will use nuclear weapons and we've all gone oh okay we'll just keep it that we're going to supply you know weapons and see what happens isn't that an act of war in itself doing that it's World War Three has started, and and anyone that thinks otherwise is you know the fact that it's in the main financial markets or air travel or whatever. We have effectively been in World War Three, and 
I guess the historians will pick a point in time when it actually really started, and it probably whether it's 2014 or or 1945. The fact of the matter is is that we've tried desperately not to think of it as such, whereas the other side has been waiting for an opportunity to undertake it. They've started the military by taking one country because it's not part of NATO and it's not part of the EU. I don't see any lines in the sand being drawn. Moldova is probably next because it's not part of the EU and it's not part of NATO. And of course, they've already taken Transnistria. Everything that I'm reading on the news, which obviously is filtered heavily by someone, says that the Russians are doing really badly in Ukraine and that things are not going well. Yeah, I mean, militarily, there's no doubt that he probably expected that there would be flowers waiting for most of his troops and it would all be over, that the government, uh, Zelensky, would fold, lead to Romania or somewhere, and that there would be a, a puppet regime in place. The resilience of the Ukrainians has to be applauded. But, you know, we're talking about an army with very little air cover, no drones to talk about. And the initial takeout is that the Russian logistics has failed. There is certainly rumors abounding about troops leaving their equipment because it's just broken down. Uh, They've run out of fuel. They expected that they would replenish using Ukrainian fuel, POL, munitions, whatever. So there's certainly an element of that. What this does, of course, is that they've now decided that the only way they're going to win is go to phase two, which is Grazny. Uh, It's Aleppo. Scorched Earth almost. Yeah, Mm. no, absolutely. You know, and um, we're faced with the initial sort of get in there fast, long convoys along the road, massive push to Kiev. They would fail and that's it. The second phase is where we are now, which is shock and awe which is basically using standoff artillery, BM-21s, smirch, cluster bombs, and all the rest of it, which will then, because of the amount of casualties and civilians, force the government to come to the table. Phase two will be a, a massive push, basically putting everything they can into play, because I think it's only even 50% of what they're capable of doing in manpower. And of course, the third is scorched earth, is literally leveling the country. Now, this is a country of 41 million people. And again, I I go back to where are the red lines? Where do we say, where does public opinion say, I'm sorry, government of Great Britain, America, NATO, EU. We're now seeing hundreds of thousands of dead Europeans. We're now seeing not 600,000 people get out of the country, refugees. We've now got 5 million, 10 million refugees, 15 million refugees. We're now seeing mass graves. We're now seeing people being slaughtered. We're now seeing the move into Moldova. At what point? None of us want World War III. I just want to put that out here. You know, I mean, really do not want World War III. But where's the line? Where's the line? If he hasn't got a line, I mean, there's no indication for him saying, okay, listen, once we've got uh, Ukraine, that's it, boys, we're done. We're finished. We're happy. 
uh, we'll all go home and we'll fix it all back together again and such. We're not seeing that. Mainly because at the moment, he's got to play the... The reason we're there is because there's lots of Nazis and they were threatening us. At some point, that isn't going to wash with the Russians. My, uh, this is just my observation and my studies of uh, particularly Second World War, but the war for the first well year, really, for the vast majority of Britain, didn't seem like a real thing. The phony war. They actually called it the phony war. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it was only really when bombers started flying over London and people started seeing their husbands and sons and boyfriends and brothers called up that people started to realize it was it was something real and that's is that what would probably happen here so we're talking about a displaced population of several hundred thousand if not more when they start arriving in crew to be glib about it is that the point where people think actually that's now public opinion no is see, going to change? ukraine is, is still a long way away from london i think the issue is ask the poles in warsaw what they're currently thinking having seen in living memory what the Germans and what the Russians did to Warsaw, ask the Czechs about the Russians going into Prague, then perhaps you know, look at Hungary, who is on the bench on this one, trying to keep the Russian bear at bay. But in their mind's eye, they must be thinking of 1956, and that's probably what's stopping them doing anything at the moment. But what will it take for the EU, NATO, Europeans, to start thinking, where's our red lines? Romania? Is Moldova a red line for them? Bearing in mind, as I said to you, I think on the last one, that you know, sort of 50% of Moldovans have Romanian passports. All of a sudden, half of Moldova then goes into Romania. We have no sets of red lines. Not that they mean anything anyway, but I mean, what would we want from our leadership is... And of course, this might be done backdoor diplomacy is going to be this these sort of conversations but as far as the general public is concerned european and, and u.s public and i think there is going to be a difference between the u.s and, and the uk on or europeans on this is u.s has never had an invasion or been attacked i mean obviously pearl harbor but but not of this consequence where they've come under these sort of conditions europe has Europe's seen it pretty much in living memory. And of course, the Holocaust that, that would happen could happen in 20 minutes. And everyone's going to be saying, well, we don't want that. So what are we prepared to give up so we don't have that? It's almost a perfect game of Jeopardy, isn't it? It is. Because it is. The way to stop it is to risk total destruction. And yet total destruction might be the only way to stop it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> clearly, clearly, if nuclear weapons were off the table, then we would probably have seen a slightly different thought process to how the Ukraine could go about doing what it's doing. That could be a lot more aircraft going in to support them. It could be uh, volunteers very much. Like, and, and people have used the analogy of the Spanish Civil War, where there were a massive amount of, of volunteers from Russia, Italy, Germany, England, Ireland, etc., etc. Ultimately, it was Russian and German air power or German air power that lost it for the uh, the, the Spanish. 
What are the chances that, as you see it, that Putin would use a nuclear weapon? Surely they're uh, minimal. No, that's the thing you see is that he's 70 years old. His gamble to take the Ukraine is mind blowing, knowing full well that uh, financially the country is now completely destroyed, all but. Russia. Yeah. It's now a pariah state. That could change in two weeks' time, and everyone says, look, the war's over now, and, and we'll, we'll start trading and doing stuff. As it stands today, Switzerland and Sweden, massively neutral countries, have come in on the financial side. And there's runs on, on the bank, people can't use their credit cards, and the oligarchs have lost billions. And then there's what they've done so far, uh, and the destruction and death and what they're about to do. I mean, they're not going to pack up and say, oops, sorry, we're going home now. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've, we've, <laughs> we've made our point. We've killed all the Nazis. We're going home now. That is not going to happen. He has to take this country now. Is that a face-saving thing? Yeah, absolutely. There is no face-saving on this. And this is the thing. It's not as though we know that his aim was to join up Ukraine, join up the Crimea, get the water going. And we've got Kharkiv. Uh, so the Donbass is, is all ours now, and that was it. I mean, the simple fact is, is that they're attacking Kiev. They're threatening Lviv, and they're attacking civilians. They're not taking out army bases and, and, and fighting battles. They're literally just flattening towns and cities. There's no going back for him now. He has to take the whole country. Going back to the initial decision, Paul, I mean, I know this is almost impossible to answer because so few people will actually be close to it. But what is the decision chain of commands within Russia? You know, in this country, if Boris wanted to go and retake Wales with uh, with force, there's quite a few checks and balances to stop it. There are no checks and balances. It's him and him only. I mean, is it really? Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a general staff, but I mean, everyone just does as he's told, and he is the boss. A lot of speculation about could he be taken out and all the rest of it. Well, the trouble is, is the rhetoric from us has all the people that are in the counseling stage may wish to counsel Putin on his decision making process are now all war criminals because of this. They're in for this now. There's no going back for them. So almost the danger is that, you know, to use the vernacular, they're all fucked, so they might as well go out in a blaze of glory. Yeah, and this is the surprising thing, and I've been struggling with this, you know, and what I know about sort of Russian mentality is it's all about, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this, this is what's going to happen to us. So if they'd gone in and said, right, we're going to take Mariupol, we're going to take, just have... Uh, Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts, and then we're going to take uh, a little bit more so we can have the water for, for the Crimea. And everyone will be going, they're fighting down the south again. Uh, nobody's attacked Kiev. Obviously, the Ukrainian army would go down there and it would fight. But ultimately, there would be that, oh well, wise words from London, Paris, New York, Washington, wherever, would say, Listen, you've made your point. You've given them a bit of a hide in. We don't want this to escalate. And therefore, Putin will have gained a few more acres. Everyone will be really upset for a while. But we go back to where we were before, which is what the West has done, Georgia, and what the West has done in Syria. 
how do you eat an elephant a bit at a time? He's gone for the whole elephant, and everyone's going, wow, their army is not producing what Putin wants. Their logistics. Is that because of the scale of the challenge? The scale or? of the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Scale of the challenge. They've gone in with along roads. Um, they've been ambushed along the way. I mean, don't forget, the West has been training the Ukraine army since 2015. I'd like to think that they've been sort of desktoping and doing all the wargaming for one, two, three, and four, and then mentioned, well, if they go for five, let's talk about it. And no one's going, really? They're not going to go for five. And everyone's going, well, let's talk it through. They've talked it through, and then it's happened. And everyone's going, oh, thank God we did that. So hence the amount of light to tank weapons that we're throwing at them, the fact that they're taking out the logistics for them. They're not leaving logistics for the Russians to come in and say, oh, we've run out of petrol. Oh, look, there's a, a Ukrainian army base there. We're going to fill up there because they've all run away. But they haven't. And so we, we, that's why we're seeing tanks on the side of the road that have been untouched. We're seeing, and obviously, the, uh, being ambushed along the way by small hunter-killer teams from the Ukrainian army. I'm guessing the Ukraine will be forced to, just by sheer force of numbers coming at them, to adopt essentially guerrilla, almost terrorist-like tactics, which is almost impossible to win against, isn't I it? I mean, strangely, I was going back through some stuff from my days in Germany in the 70s, and there was a doctrine of, of stay-behind troops. Basically, once your position had been taken by shock and awe, then you would break into small two, three-man, four-man teams and try and make your way back. But if not, your job was simply to take out rear echelon uh, logistics. And there were regiments trained to do that in the British Army. And that's pretty much what they've been told to do. Four or five-man hunter-killer teams taking out the odd tank, the stray vehicle, their petrol, the logistics, their ammo, and then going back into the countryside to pick up some more ammo and go back out again. So they've gone straight in to do that. I mean, there's, there's no set-piece tank battles with the Ukraine army. There's no set-piece artillery per se. And of course, now they're arming 50, 60, 100,000 civilians with Molotov cocktails, bearing in mind that that's what the Hungarians did in 56 and, and stopped them in 56 until such time as they just overwhelming force went in with a massive push and then cleared them all out. And, of course, that's when we saw people that disappear in the mass graves and all the rest of it. Is there any scenario when the Ukrainians just win militarily? Ha, huh, no. No, they're just not strong enough. Unless they had control over the skies. Then they would need to regroup into, into proper battle formation and then take on. Okay, scenarios. We have had rumors, and the, these are only rumors. Now, I, I, what I do now is I, I look at Twitter, and then 48 hours later, I look at that story. And it's probably gone by then, so it, has, it doesn't exist. Working on the 48-hour rule, there is certainly evidence of some Russians going, I didn't know we were here. I'm not going to fight Ukrainians because my uncle's Ukrainian and, you know, auntie whatever lives here. So there is evidence of, of some Russians going, this is mad, which is probably why they're going for artillery and air force bombardment and rockets, because it means that the people that are pulling the, you know, pressing the buttons 
don't particularly understand or there's no face-to-face uh, stuff that's going on. And we, we have seen scenes of Ukrainians stopping some of these uh, convoys and saying, what are you doing here? This is madness. Do you know where you are? And we've seen the state of some of the, uh, the, the POWs, which is, but there's propaganda. There's massive amount of propaganda. At the moment, it's all in Ukraine's favor. The story of the, the ghost of Kiev and the story of the 13 sailors on the island and all the rest of it, which have all been proved to be somewhat exaggerated. The 48-hour rule is a good thing to do. Is there a scenario where the Russian soldiers say, we're not planning anymore? No. No, because they know at the end of the day that their families would suffer back home. It's going to be a fight to the death then. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the, f- the first thing I'd say is that in any war, leadership is probably one of the defining factors that make people fight on. World War II, we saw the king and the queen stay. We saw Churchill stay. Charles de Gaulle fled. Well, yeah, but we also saw de Gaulle form an army to come back a free army we saw the free norwegians that you know so we saw that we also saw the resilience of the people under the blitz and we saw you know heroism and it's very difficult in 2022 to think that something like that would be so meaningful and now we see zelensky and his family we are staying, and we see world boxers, we see gymnasts, we see members of parliament, and we're inspired. And so what that must mean to the Ukrainians, who fathers taking their, their families to the Polish border and then saying, I'm going back now. Um, now, there is a, a degree of propaganda that comes with that. If it's one person doing that, you know, there's going to be five, there's going to be 10. But the simple fact of the matter is that Zelensky is there. As much as people are saying, oh, yes, I'm sure he's safe and he's in the bunker and all the rest of it. The king was protected. The king had a, a, an exit strategy, God forbid, if they'd landed in England in you know, 1941. But the fact of the matter is he stayed. And that means something. I think also that the Ukrainians are seeing the world wherein blue and yellow today facebook people have got their their, their flags and and twitter and and then they're reading about companies that are not selling their you know jaguars to the russians anymore small things and it is small and, and it may seem you know history may may think it, it quite petty but for those that are there it means a huge amount and the analogy that i would like to say is that those in Vietnam, when they came back home, you know, were spat on. And they, they were. You know, I've, I've spoken to guys that were. And the anti-war that was going on when they were out there fighting. The demoralization of, of the army is such where you need to know that everyone's behind you and that everyone's staying where they, they should be. So I think morale is one of the things that, you know, I say historians are going to look at and say, that was the big one. Oh, that was certainly, you know, a, a huge percentage. 
Is there a parallel, in a sense, with with Hitler at this point, where that toxic trench? He's a boring management speaker, and as, as Matt knows, I'm a I'm a leading light in in business talk in the UK. You really are, Matt. <laughs> I've, I've been asked to write. For really is impressive. The Cheshire and North Wales business directory. Going to be so controversial. I've got to brush up on my absolutely on my theories. The toxic triangle of an autocratic leader, susceptible followers, and a conducive environment plays a big part here. And I think what I'm seeing, and perhaps you'll be able to shed more light on it, is the command chain under Putin are fearful of the implications of failure and are therefore possibly reporting situations that are not either accurate or or real. Yeah, the, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, there's no way you're going to walk in and say, well, just to let you know that 1st Battalion and 2nd Brigade have decided that they don't want to play anymore and they've gone home. That's not going to happen. But equally so, he will be told that things haven't gone as well as they should do. I think, uh, and this is me reading the runes, if I go back to the conversation we had about they're all sitting outside Ukraine in pretty appalling conditions, uh, mud, probably no tents, sleeping in the back of their vehicles, uh, engines running uh, to try and keep warm, scrounging bits of logs of wood to try and get fires going. At some point, somebody would have said to him, look, we either need to do this or we've got to send these guys back because you know, hypothermia, foot rot, food issues, morale, etc., etc." That was probably a factor in the decision-making process. And I have read, and again, I take all this with a pinch of salt, that orders were given on the 22nd, which makes sense for operational security. I think that was a factor. And from that, you're moving generally cold, wet, miserable troops into battle, where they will remain cold, wet, and miserable, and probably not fed, or at least living off MREs. That's not good. Then there's the bit that says... Again, this could be hyperbole, but you know, you've got to take it as read that they had no maps, they had to go by road, they're expecting to be, you know, we're going in there to defeat the Nazis, therefore the people are going to, you know, wave flags at them and thank you, you're here. And they weren't met with that. There wasn't any Nazis for them to fight. There were babushkas walking up to them saying, put some seeds in your pocket so that when you die, flowers will grow where you were anecdotal but it's the sort of thing that you would expect the babushkas to say and whilst they they won't have access to the internet and they won't be on twitter talking to their mates on facebook communication will very very quickly be between units of we're lost they don't like us and we have seen pictures of them going into towns raiding the local shops because they have no food they've run out of food so is that going to be fed back to Putin? I doubt it. But the generals will know this. And Putin will say, how are we doing today, boys? And they will be going, great, boss. Fantastic. Nearly taken Kiev. But you said that yesterday and the day before and the day before that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the generals are going to say, right, we're going to have to go to you know, shock and awe. We're going to have to go to artillery to blast these people. And then the question is, well, we're now war criminals, so we've got nothing to lose. But equally so, 
They're still not giving in. And at some point, we're going to have to say we failed. And that's a death sentence. Paul, you mentioned a second ago about leadership, and I find it a very interesting concept within the military. Looking back at your career, are there leaders that you would have followed to the ends of the earth, yes. irrespective, w- without even maybe questioning yes. the morality of what oh, you're doing? Oh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. My first senior boss, uh, it was a guy called Major Beckinsale. He'd young, uh, won the, the military cross in a far-flung country. He was a, a forward observation officer. My job at that point in time, I was a signaler for the forward observation officer. So we were forward of the infantry to bring fire down on the Russian shock army if they'd ever turned up. And we had a life expectancy. I think ours was 15 minutes. Wow. Could have been 20 at the most. But he was a brilliant boss. I mean, he had been in, in action, won the military cross, brought fire down himself when he's, uh, he was about to be overrun. But he was a quiet, unassuming man. He would be more than happy to call you by your first name. It was all very, very, you know, yes, boss. There was no regimental stuff. But he would also sit down and, and tell you what his expectations were. He set very high standards, but it was, they weren't bullish. But at the end of the day, you also knew that he knew about war. He knew about what was expected of you ultimately. He was a a great leader as far as an understanding that no matter what the circumstances were, you had a job to do. And there was no running from it. And that was a, a, a big lesson for me. You have to face up to the fact that whatever happens, you've got a job to do. And you had to be the best you could. And so that sort of inspired us to make sure our equipment was constantly tested, that we would never let him down. But he was kind as well, massively kind. He'd be saying, you know, how's your mom and dad? He didn't have to say that. You know, uh, he was a good boss. Uh, later on, you come across those that are indifferent or they weren't, they were just in it for whatever glory or whatever and didn't really much care about the part that you played in their own advancement but certainly he he was the the first boss that that inspired me to without doubt paul one thing that you know i i think is very interesting about europe because of the you know the borders and the historical conflicts and so on is the idea of, of hatred across boundaries i always thought that this was overplayed a little bit until when I was living in France I met a chap who was uh, Northern Irish and you know I met him in a bar with a load of French guys and a few a few other Irish people from um, Southern Ireland and a couple of Brits and an America was there as well and this chap was very frosty towards me as a Brit and I, I remember getting chatting to to one of the other, other girls and she was saying that he absolutely hates the british and i was like okay fine it turns out that his dad was beaten up by the british army in belfast or something and you know he was a victim of some pretty questionable behavior from paramilitaries and so on anyway the thing that really struck me was i experienced a hatred that was really visceral and something that i'd never experienced before you know you dislike people at school or work in rugby pitches and you know 
bars and a night out and all the rest of it. But this was something else. This was a different level of disdain and, and hatred. And I'm guessing that if the Ukraine fighters have that feeling of animosity towards Russia, it's like fighting with double the number of men. I think R- Russian-Ukraine conflict certainly will open up quite a few wounds. What's interesting about the areas that they're specifically attacking at the moment, which is certainly in the South, predominantly Russian-speaking, and were part of the Soviet Union, and fought for the Soviet Union, and have families on both sides of the border, which is quite extraordinary. Kharkiv, which is where I lived for a while, Russian-speaking, the separatists tried to take it back in fourteen, weren't successful not particularly nationalistic, and so has managed to sit there uh, quite happily being Ukrainian. They're now bombing it into oblivion. Kharkiv has a massive uh, Russian history. I mentioned a very good Russian friend of mine, and I. he said, I, I want to show you my Kharkiv. I said, well, you're not from here, you're from Russia. He said, no, no, he said, I used to come here on holidays, my grandfather, and he pointed up to the university said that apartment up there that was my grandfather's he was a professor here the links are are, are huge and now they're bombing it into oblivion and they're fighting back i can't see any hatred between this is literally barbarism this is beyond the pale they're both the same they're both shared shared history both the languages and everything else now you go up to lviv and what used to be part of the austro-hungarian empire and then Poland, and obviously they speak Ukrainian. And of course, you know, we, we talked about Bandera and all that stuff. And so you could say, yeah, there is an animosity on both sides, but not for where the majority of the attacks are at the moment. There will be now, for sure. People aren't going to forget this. I mean, the fact that most of them are going to be trying to get out, or they just decide that, you know, okay, we'll be Russian and, and get on with our lives. But their lives are going to be a lot different under the Russians than they are under the, the Ukrainians. What's the view over the other side of the pond then? I mean, obviously, Matt in LA, I'm sure it's quite different to, to where you are, Paul, as well. It's interesting. I, I'll, I'll let Matt go into a bit more detail because what I'm seeing here politically is, I guess, Ukraine's got nothing to do with us. Let them get on with it. Then you have... Freedom is is something that we should be fighting for. Then we have the not interested, not important, doesn't exist. And then also you have the hawks saying, you know, we should be going in, guns blazing. I just have one observation, which is that yesterday I got a ride. It's very complicated, but I had to walk two miles in the desert. And I got a ride from this guy with a truck. He's like, um, he makes sculptures out of really old wrecked vehicles that are out there. They're really cool. He gets these like old scrap Ford trucks and stuff and like, you know, user was a welder and he's like probably about 55 and he's, he smokes a lot of weed and, and he lives out, out there, you know, so he's a really peaceful. He's like the only interaction I've had with him about politics were a few weeks ago. And he said, Oh, you know, I don't really do politics. I'm into peace and love and stuff. Right. And so I was like, okay, yeah, you know what? He drove me to where I was going yesterday and I said to him, did you watch the news about Ukraine? This guy is probably extremely left-wing, right? Uh, He goes to me, yeah, he goes, the one thing you can say is, this would never have happened under Trump. Even that guy is basically going, 
Biden screwed it. That's amazing. This is a guy who probably like smokes weed all day, yeah. and and even he's come down with a pro-Trump analysis of the, of the situation. Yeah. The thing I find difficult, you know, you know, I guess, as an amateur student of history, and I, I guess I like to consider myself fairly liberal thinking. There's a part of me that says avoid war at all costs. You know, keep Britain and NATO well out of this, and horrible to see it happening, but you know, it's, it's a faraway country, and so on. But then there's the other part of me that just can't watch it without wanting our leader and the leaders of NATO to say, right, enough's enough. It's really challenging, isn't it? Because at what point do the politicians say, as you said, Paul, earlier in the call, you know, what point do the politicians say, I just can't sit back and say, what is that trigger point? At what point do they say, actually, we need planes in the sky over Ukraine. We need to work on the ground to push Russian forces out of Ukraine. While we got the threat of nuclear proliferation, and he's obviously said that you know if if you want to play that game, we'll play that game. I think everyone's gone away going, oh, oh, ah, the story about Bulgaria and Slovakia and Poland giving planes over. It's been debunked, although I'm still waiting for clarification because they were hoping for the Ukrainian pilots to come over the border, pick up their planes, and then go straight into the battle, as it were. And that's straight away. Russia will go, well, well, NATO's involved now. Big red button. Again, we have no cohesive policy from this side of the pond that would turn around and say, uh, and, and I must add that there was never any cohesive policy in World War I or World War Two. so this is no surprise. So World War Three is probably very much the same. But there is no cohesive policy that says we're going to stop using Russian oil and this is our red line. You will stop using cluster bombs. You will stop doing this. You will stop doing that. Behind closed doors, sitting down. But a public announcement of saying we have presented a number of uh, red lines or we've presented that the war must stop and we don't want you doing X, Y, and Z. Also, we're not seeing Biden or somebody of that ilk flying to Moscow and saying, stop this shit. Stop it now. This is madness. I mean, would Putin allow that? Would he even well, let them into the country well, to have that conversation? Well, you know, at this point in time, we're almost at a point where doing nothing is almost as bad politically Doing nothing is suicide. Doing something, at least, will get some votes. If you look to Anwar Sadat, who literally got on a plane to Tel Aviv to stop the war between uh, Israel and Egypt, that could have escalated very, very easily to where we are now. What we're not seeing is the big guns. And the people that have negotiated from the US side are nobodies. I mean, nobody's going to talk to them. They have no credibility. One was a social worker, and I'm not knocking social workers, but, you know, a former social worker. But, I mean, when you're talking to Ministry of Defense or generals or politicians in Russia, you've got to be bringing out the big guns. I mean, I'm talking big gun. You've got to have somebody quietly, unassumingly, and without any fanfare walking up to the bully and saying, okay, what do you want? Because what you're doing at the moment is not helping your case. What you're doing at the moment 
is only going to escalate things. Now, we don't want to escalate things. What do you want? Let's negotiate. I want the Ukraine. Well, that's not going to happen. Right? That's not going to happen. Because all we're simply going to do is throw lots and lots of equipment. There'll be lots and lots of international volunteers. And more of your troops are going to die. And there's a possibility it will escalate because you'll do something stupid or we'll do something stupid. And then we've both lost. So instead of us both losing, where do we go from here? I hope somebody's doing that, but I'm not seeing that. And this is the issue with NATO, European Union. Who's the player? Is it NATO or is it European Union? Or is it United Kingdom who are not part of the EU, but part of NATO? So again, we don't have a, a singular voice that says, I'm here to negotiate on behalf of. Traditionally, this is where America's always stepped in. You know, they've always been a part of European discussions and obviously, you know, and played a part. And then looked very carefully at who the good guy or bad guys are, and then always done the right thing after they've tried everything else. But at the end of the day, nobody at the moment is picking up that phone and saying, right, you and me, Helsinki, tomorrow. It's like Biden is just, he's just absent, isn't he? Well, you see, this is it. We don't know if he's absent. We don't know. You know, at the end of the day, he could be doing all sorts of stuff behind the doors or ask the third party, Japan, to do it or, or whatever. But not coming out and saying, we've broken a ceasefire. Yeah. I mean, he's got his State of the Union address, hasn't he, this afternoon? Yeah, but build back better. <laughs> and, and COVID's finished because I've, I've found a cure. Yeah. You don't go away the weekend that Kiev was likely to fall. But he didn't fall, but you don't go away for the weekend. You know, visibility, leadership, visible leadership. But equally so, we don't want crazy talk. We don't want somebody saying, oh, I'm going to FF this and, and do this. And We've gone from crazy talk to nothing. Do you think that's likely the next play would be an element of, okay, right now it's sanctions. If you, for argument's sake, go into Moldova, then NATO will react militarily. Well, the thing is, is that NATO can't because they're not NATO members. And if NATO could, I personally believe that given the fact that they, they've taken over the Donbass and Crimea, this was probably a red line for Putin. Putin was probably waiting for NATO or, or Ukraine as it stood post-2015 to join NATO or the EU. And then they would have probably unwrapped what they've just done on the pretense that we're not having NATO next to us. But we've also reneged on the Budapest Memorandum that said we will defend the neutrality if you give up your nuclear bombs, Mr. Ukraine. So, hence, we're supplying the weapons and stuff like that. Where anyone goes with this, I mean, if, as a negotiator, I would simply be doing, I would make it known that I want to sit down. We have to ask ourselves, is he capable, or Biden capable of doing that, given that he may not be 100% working as you know, reflected by some of the stuff that he's done. But at the end of the day, somebody needs to sit down and say, what do we have to do to stop this? And I don't see that. Now, in 1939, 
He still carried on doing it. I must inform the country that we are now at war with Germany. I have tried everything I possibly can. I've sat down with him. I've got assurances. Here's a piece of paper from Herr Hitler. I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing anyone from either Europe or from the US or anywhere else to, you know, to say, I've gone there, I've tried to sit down with him, he won't see me, all I got was nothing. Right? Now, the people need to know that. If that's the case, then we can prepare for that. He is now hell-bent on Ukraine, Moldova, the Baltic states, Poland, whatever. We have to assume that. If he's not prepared to sit down and say, I'm doing this, yeah, we've heard the rubbish about the Nazis and chemical warfare and to secure the nuclear facilities uh, in Ukraine. We've heard all that rubbish. That's garbage. We all know that's garbage. Everyone knows that garbage. He either tells us or we assume. If we assume that his war aims are greater than than what he's doing at the moment, then we can mobilize. I don't want to see mass mobilization of Europe. Equally so, I don't want to see people going, oh, this is it. You know, he's, he's just going to do this and we'll wait for the next move. If we don't meet, at least on the NATO borders, with enough equipment and weapons and all the periphery of war, then we're going to get caught out. If we don't prepare the civilians for what could happen. And I'm not saying, you know, we we start looking at the state of our shelters, but we should be still looking at the state of our shelters. We should be preparing people. We've gone to Mr. Putin. We've asked him to stop. We've asked him to negotiate. He will not negotiate. You know, very much like after Poland, we've asked him to leave Poland, but he's not going to leave Poland. Therefore, we're in a state of war. I can't see any other scenarios other than next month he takes Moldova and next month he does something else. And we sim- simply haven't prepared ourselves for what may come next. You mentioned last time we spoke, Paul, about Putin's ability to play the long game. You know, he's not working between electoral cycles. He's not particularly fussed about public opinion and so on. You know, could it be a situation where he takes Kiev, he settles in, in into Ukraine, then starts taking control over the media, which, which of course he will do, starts painting a picture of happy Ukrainians and, and so on. And then 10 years go past, nothing much happens. And then then it's Moldova. Is that a possibility? It is, but there's other factors to, to put into play. One is the human rights abuses undoubtedly will happen. Secondly, that some Ukrainians will carry on fighting and start killing people, and then there's going to be retribution. And then there's going to be the 5, 10, 15, 20 million Ukrainians that are now refugees. And countries that are coming out of COVID with economies teetering on collapse in, in many, many ways, 
And again, in the UK, we saw somebody stand up in Parliament today saying, I'm sorry, but Hartlepool is full. We can't take any more. Well, Hartlepool, really? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, it probably wasn't Hartlepool, it was somewhere else. But, but literally an MP saying, oh, I can't take any more refugees. We've got too many already. You now starting to throw 15, 20 million Ukrainian refugees into Europe. Uh, yeah, Poland will take probably most of them. Uh, Hungary has said they won't take any at all. And then you start looking at you know Germany and all the rest of it. And then they're going to come over. And of course, they're not going to be coming over on dinghies. They're going to be coming over normally, just as refugees, as they did in World War II. Are we prepared for the Moldovan refugees? Well, yeah, probably Romania will take most of them because they speak Romanian, etc., etc. All the time, this is money that we should be spending on defense. It's not a finite amount of money. I mean, and how long do we wait for Russia to start doing incursions somewhere else? At what point do we say no? So fast forward and it plays out how we all fear it does, or fear it will, sorry, America lend their their might and we push Putin out of Ukraine. Where does that stop? Do you push them back in across the border and say, right, don't do it again, or we'll, we'll tell teacher? I mean, there would have to be regime change, realistically. The issues at the moment are the war will continue and he will continue to take lands that are not his, and we do nothing about it. The war will continue and spill into NATO, that will then have NATO uh, and World War III. The options on the table then are nuclear on both sides, and it's a question of whether they're battlefield nukes and what we do about those. Because battlefield nukes could take out uh, Lviv, for example, still within Ukraine. Is using nuclear weapons a red line on the battlefield within Ukraine? They've already said that cyber attacks on NATO countries is an Article 5. I'm not sure how that would play out. And then we have the crazy tank commander that just says, I'm going to go into Estonia tomorrow morning because I'm lost. And then we have the Russians waking up one morning and going, do you know what? Our lives are changing. We've lost 5,000 young lads. We could be looking at a lot, lot more. And the colonels say, no, we're not happy with this. We see Georgia taking the bits of, that, that were taken from them by Russia. We might see Moldova having a pop at trying to take Transnistria back. Then we have the China, who has always been interested in taking Siberia. So you know what we don't want is a collapse of Russia and all that that would bring. This is a, probably one of, the, one of the most crucial times in our lives. You've seen some pretty hairy stuff over the years and you've been in situations that you probably can't even talk about, I'd imagine, as well. How frightened are you right now? My sister phoned me up the other day and asked me that question. She was in the RAF and she said to me, look, I'm getting in some bottled water, I'm getting in some, uh, some tinned food. I watched the news. I was in the RAF. I did all my nuclear, biological, chemical warfare training. I know what Russia's capable of doing. And back in the 70s and 80s, this is what we trained to do. And 
I think, what's your feeling? Should I be doing this? And my answer to her was yes. It does no harm anyway, whether it's you, know, you live in a, a place where you have hurricanes or bad winters. I think that the uncertainty politically of anyone having a grip on what could happen or what may happen. And I think that's my concern. There doesn't appear to be an organization, UN, OSCE, EU, NATO, or a government that has a grip of this, that knows what's happening next. I spent my life doing what-ifs and generally being 80% correct in what people will do next. You can read the runes, you could look at history, you could look at their capability, you can look at a lot of things. And I think the fact that I got it wrong and so many others got it wrong, that he was willing to do what he's doing now, knowing that his army probably wasn't up to scratch, and the fact that the Ukrainians certainly have fought back harder than I ever thought they would, means that there's going to be a lot of people all in the same position as, as me, going, I simply don't know what's going to happen next. And the fact that he's now put nuclear on the table gives me some concern. Okay, so if DEFCON 1 was say goodbye to your kids and, uh, you know, and all the rest of it, see you in Valhalla, DEFCON 5 is where we were before all this. We are certainly ratcheted up too. We're definitely on DEFCON 3. I will be watching for mistakes being made. I will be watching for where the economic sanctions go because, you know, we are looking at a cornered rat. And when they have nowhere to go, and I will look at leadership from UN, OSCE, or wherever who are prepared to say, we need a big sit down. And I'm not seeing that. If State of the Union or, or sometime in the next couple of days, Biden says, I'm off to Helsinki, I'm invited Mr. Putin, I will breathe a sigh of relief. But if I don't see any of this, nobody holding him personally to account or at least sitting down with him and going, listen, me old son, you've bitten on a bit too much here. Now, there's some ways out now, but it seems to me that he's, he's on destruct mode. That's the bit that says he, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about losses. He doesn't care about losing. He's willing to level, ostensibly, cities that are Russian-speaking. He's willing to destroy everything in Ukraine, just to make a point. Now, he knows that he is now a war criminal. If he wasn't before, he is now. So where does he go? Where what does that mean, though, in real terms? I mean, you know. In, in real terms, we all talk about legacy. We all talk about where we want to be in history. I don't think there's any leader in any country that doesn't want to be viewed on as, as an absolute hero, fantastic guy, won lots of battles, economy was fantastic, rich beyond his wildest dreams, you know, whatever metric you want to give to a country's leader. And on the 21st of this month, he could have gone to any country, he could have asked for an audience with the Queen. He was a statesman. 
that people wanted to talk to, and he was invited to various countries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's gone. So internationally, he is no longer a statesman that people want to play with, apart from Venezuela and maybe China and, and, and India. You know that when only Venezuela and India want to be your friends. Well, I mean, I've got wrong. to tell you, I don't think India is going to be there much longer, especially where the overtures that uh, Pakistan's making to, uh, to Russia at yeah, the moment. Yeah, I saw that. So India is sitting there thinking, well, all our equipment is Russian. All our telecommunications is Russian, but all it would need is is somebody to tap them on the shoulder and say, "Listen, we'll re- resupply you everything you want from wherever." And they go, "Okay." So, and of course, everyone wanted this over in days. Terrible, but it's over. It's over. It's done. Ukraine is now Russia, and everyone just gets on with their life. There'd be a few sort of you know people walking out of UN meetings or stiff letters written, but apart from that. In six months' time, he would be back being a benevolent leader in a greater Russia. I'm not sure that's going to happen. No. It's pretty terrifying, isn't it? I must admit, I've only in the last couple of days started to really take this seriously. And it's, I think what really got to me today was watching the address to the to EU from what's her name Zelensky no before that there was a, a female oh uh, yes yeah uh, very powerful well, one, one of the things in America that's very interesting to watch is obviously you know they're fixated on especially on the right on the great reset and and deep state and all the rest of it and the world economic forum and Soros and, and all those wonderful conspiracy theories and I dare say somewhere along the line, there has been some manipulation of various governments and stuff and all the rest of it. For me, parking some of these things and keeping it simple is a European country, 41 million people, that has been peaceful. Yes, corrupt in many respects, as many former Soviet countries are, but is now being systematically destroyed by heavy artillery, rockets, and cluster bombs, and in the middle of Europe. And if you transpose Ukraine, I mean, literally covers most of the east coast of America. I mean, it's a huge country, having traveled it extensively. By somebody who we don't know how far they're going to take it. We don't know where they're going to stop. There is no indication from them that once they've done this, we'll be happy. Is there a school of thought that says, let's take chance off the table? Now, let's not wait to see what how far he'll go. Let's stop him before he gets the opportunity to, to lose his shit. Yes. And the trouble is, is that most sane people, and I count myself in this, would mutter it under their breath and then go, do you know what? We can't take the chance. There's more of a chance that he would stop at the borders of Poland and then call it a day. And then we'd live the rest of our lives happy and content than there is if we went in and actually physically attacked the Russian army. And I don't think we got the capability either. But as much as I'd like to see us ride into their rescue, and retaking those towns and cities and giving the Russians a damn good thrashing. We are not prepared to do what they're prepared to do to stop us doing that. And I honestly feel that we don't have the means or or the will 
even if they use tactical nuclear bombs within the confines of Ukraine to do anything about it. Because de-escalation is, at the end of the day, what we are trying to do. And that might mean allowing him to do what he wants until he's done what he wants. The point is, we don't know what he wants. Thanks for listening. We'll continue to bring you updates as the situation develops. But in the meantime, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share the podcast and get in touch with your feedback. This was straight from the hot tap.